today I'm speaking to Chris Yelland and Brendan Slade. I'm Ilza Saltzvedel and today's discussion is on car power ship. And as you know, Alta launched a court case against car power ships as a power supplier. And lately it's been on everybody's lips. Shouldn't we just allow car power ship to come in and generate electricity because that will definitely end load shedding? That's the argument on social media. But Chris Yelland and Brendan Slade will tell you exactly why that is not a valid argument. Good day, gentlemen. Thank you for speaking to me. Hello, Ilse. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ilse. Looking forward to the discussion. We are here to clear up some very confusing facts and urban legends around car power ships. So please just bring our listeners um, back to what Alta did last year and why we decided to take this whole deal to court. Brendan, if you can do that for us, please. Thank you, Ulza. So first off, uh, it is widely known that Alta is currently in pending litigation against car powership and nurses specifically. So in April of last year, Alta launched a court application in the Pretoria High Court. And this is particularly a review application to review and set aside the decision of NURSA for the approval of the three generation licenses granted to car powership. These licenses would essentially justify or enable car powership to generate electricity at Richards Bay, Cougar and Saldana Bay. But in the absence of a valid generation license, there's no means for car powership to do that. So this is a legal requirement in terms of our regulatory environment. And the grounds upon which this uh, application was brought by Alta is, amongst other things, we believe that NERSA did not take the relevant information and the public interest into consideration when these licenses were approved. And we strongly believe, and we were, we were advised by our experts that we consulted as well, that it would be to the financial detriment of the country if we are to proceed with the deals of car powership. You're talking financials. Can you just uh, say again what this will cost? That was last year's figures. I presume they have changed because the whole global situation have changed around things like gas supply, rand dollar exchange and everything else. Yes, thank you, Ilza. Um, at the time when a car power ship won the bid, the price was at around one rand fifty per kilowatt hour, and uh, as the process went on, NERSA estimated that price to then be around two rand eighty cents per kilowatt hour. According to the the experts that we consulted, they projected a cost of around five rand per kilowatt hour, and with the current crisis in the in the Ukraine escalating by the day, this cost to generate the electricity would just skyrocket. And, and just to put that all in context, the, this particular set of deals are going to run at around 20 years with a price tag of around 200 billion. And as the crisis and the demand for, for gas just proliferates, the, this price would, would skyrocket exponentially. I don't know if, if Chris would want to go into some technicalities on this, perhaps. Yes, please. Thank you. Um... Yeah, Brendan um, and, and Ilsa, the bid price, as Brendan stated, was about one rand fifty a kilowatt hour. And of that one rand fifty a kilowatt hour, one rand a kilowatt hour accounts for the fuel cost, the price of the LNG, liquefied natural gas fuel. 
And that price is not fixed. It's a variable price that varies uh, day to day, month to month, year to year. And uh, whatever that price is gets passed through to the customer. So whilst the bid price was 150, one rand of this is a highly variable component depending on the dollar price of LNG at the time that it is procured and also the rand dollar exchange rate, both of which are variables outside of control of government or the customer or car powership. Uh, and ultimately, the customer, the electricity customer, ultimately bears the risk of variations in these. And uh, if you look at the last 20 years, uh, there's been a massive uh, increase in the dollar price of um, hydrocarbon fuels like petrol and diesel and gas. And also the RAND has weakened considerably over the last 20 years. So one can expect in the next 20 years a similar kind of trend, I suppose. And therefore, one can expect an ever escalating price of fuel, which accounts for two thirds of the tariff price and would ultimately account to much more than two thirds of the tariff price, uh, you know, as, as the fuel price escalates. And that really has not been properly disclosed to the customer. As a lot of the price uh, justifications or the price calculations uh, in the reasons for decision of MRSA in terms of granting them licenses have been redacted. And therefore, the public and industry are not to know these things. And certainly, this secrecy aspect is uh, something that Outer is now coming up against and challenging uh, and trying to obtain the necessary facts. And maybe Brendan can fill us in on the latest court action to overcome these secrecy aspects. Okay, Brendan, before you do that, I just want to ask Chris, if that deal was to be signed today at today's LNG price and today's Rand dollar exchange, is it already higher than the bid price? Oh, yes, for sure. Uh, of course, the price varies, as I say, uh, you know, week by week, day by day, month by month. But the price of LNG today is significantly higher than it was at the time of bid. Uh, in fact, at the time of bid, the price of LNG was almost at one of its low points, its lowest points for many, many, many years. And uh, this has compounded the issue because there is a natural variation and the price varied also with the COVID uh, uh, pandemic and also with uh, subsequently with the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war and the use of energy as a weapon uh, in Europe by by Russia. So uh, the whole world is feeling the effect of this uh, use of gas as as a weapon and the price has uh, rocketed in all jurisdictions, including South Africa. Right. Brendan, please, uh, can you take us through what's happening in this next round of legal work to compel car powership and NERSA and everybody involved to show us all the facts? Thank you, Ilza. Yes, first off, it's it's quite sad that civil society has to reach a point where we need to revert to litigation in order to get the truth. So early last week, we launched an application to compile, and this relates obviously to the review application that I referred to previously. So in terms of the relevant court rules, NERSA and car powership is supposed to provide us as the applicants in, in the review matter 
with the full unredacted record of the decision so that we can advance and so that we can file supplementary paper and so that we can eventually um, bring this court case to, to some, some kind of outcome. So just the time lapse is, is quite worrisome because we filed in April of last year. So ever since we filed, we have not received the full extent of the record that we are seeking. This application to compile will now give car powership and nurse the opportunity to come forth with the records. But we have unfortunately heard earlier this morning from our attorneys that car powership has filed its notice of intention to oppose this application. So they still have time to file their opposing papers in which they will obviously set out their defense why this particular record should not be, be given to Alta. But what is also of, of great concern is this record behind the decisions is not just in Alta's interest to advance the litigation, but it's also in the interest of the public because at the end of the day, deals of this big magnitude will undoubtedly affect the public. So this withholding of this crucial in information, it's a massive travesty. And unfortunately, it's something that we as South Africans are used to. But uh, luckily, we can utilize judicial processes in order to get to the truth at the end of the day. Brendan, my question would be, um, is there a cutoff date for the implementation of car powership? In other words, can car powership gain by withholding the information? Because once the process reaches a certain stage, then this is pushed through. Or do we not have to fear that? Ilza, uh, that's a catch-22 question for the following reason. Obviously, a delay in the litigation would just prolong a proper implementation of car powership. They will not reach financial close with all these different processes pending. On the other hand, we are sitting with a massive electricity crisis. So the longer this court case drags out, the, the much more clear it would become for everyone out there that, you know what, car powership becoming a thing in South Africa is not that big of an emergency as our politicians would try to make us think. I would like to go a bit deeper into the fact that this is actually an emergency solution. These ships are normally deployed in countries where there was an earthquake or where there's war. Why is government in the first place trying to push through emergency power producers on a 20-year basis? Is there political motivation behind this? Yeah, the point is, Ilsa, that um, there are serious questions about the rationality of such a decision. It would suggest that we're going to have an emergency for the next 20 years if the solution is to be provided for 20 years. And everybody, uh, you know, believes that if government does the right thing, uh, the load shedding that we experience can be over within some years and maybe two or three or four or five years, but there does not appear to be anybody who thinks that we need an emergency solution at this kind of price for the next 20 years, because there are other alternatives that are quicker and cheaper and produce less carbon dioxide emissions and are less polluting and are more beneficial to the country than this emergency solution. And I just want to point to 
the fact that, you know, this is a rented solution. It is not owned in South Africa. The, the ships are leased. The floating uh, storage and gasification units are leased for a period of 20 years, which is really unprecedented. Uh, and we never own them. Now, it's like, I just draw an analogy to the hiring of a car. Now, we all know there are times when we need a hired car. When we've had an accident in our own car, we even sometimes have an insurance policy that pays for a hired car whilst our car is being repaired. But it makes no business or financial sense to hire a rental car for the next 20 years when you're in a little emergency right now and you need a car for a couple of months uh, whilst your normal car is being repaired. And it's the same kind of analogy. It just makes no financial sense to rent a car for 20 years when there are, are lower cost uh, alternatives of, uh, available to you. So I hope that it kind of explains the irrationality of this decision to provide an emergency solution for 20 years. Yes, it, it's actually the perfect example. But uh, I would like you guys to go through some of the very pertinent issues discussed on social media. People are under the impression that bringing those ships in will immediately make a difference to load shedding. Chris, can you uh, talk us through rolling out the car power ship mm. solution? Because it's not mm. as easy as taking a long lead, throwing it from the ship to the harbor, plug it in, and voila, load shedding is over. Yeah, so first thing I'd like to say is that um, the car power ship projects are about 1,200 megawatts, and they deliver power for about 16 to 18 hours a day in terms of the contract. And that is about one stage of load shedding that they could alleviate, which is not insignificant, but it's very far from the stage five, stage six load shedding that we have at the moment. So yes, it may alleviate load shedding, if it was implemented, but it certainly wouldn't uh, eliminate it or avoid it. So we mustn't look to this as some kind of a panacea. Second thing is that I think people are under the impression, as you say, that this thing can be deployed very, very quickly. Well, I would beg to differ that there are a number of uh, factors that make it such that I don't think it's something that can be just delivered very quickly. And by that, I mean within a month or two. So first of all, one needs to reach financial closure on these things, and it's already dragged out, you know, for like two years with no sign of uh, conclusion. Uh, there are environmental authorizations required. There are pipeline licenses required. There, there are trading licenses required. Uh, there is a power purchase agreement uh, with uh, ESKIM required. And there are ports authorizations required to uh, moor these in South African harbors for 20 years. Are any yeah. of these things um, already arranged? Because you, you no. talk about financial close, which to the layman might not mean much. But in other words, we need all these authorizations to be completed and then for the deal to be okayed. Am I correct? That's exactly right. Uh, it's, it's not a case that there's just some litigation pending that needs to be resolved. There is the litigation plus all the normal authorizations, none of which is in place at the moment, even after two years uh, since they were announced as preferred bidders. That is just to get the paperwork right to place the order. Then there is still the actual work uh, to get this 
project going, get the equipment and, and, and uh, infrastructure in place. And uh, just to recap, they will need to hire or build or, or secure a number of floating LNG storage and regasification units. These are in very short supply at the moment because the demand for these in Europe with the Ukrainian and Russian war on the go, uh, Europe has to start making plans to rapidly increase its gas import infrastructure from what it used to be getting was piped gas from Russia that is closed down now. So they've got to make alternative plans. So they are scrambling around, uh, you know, snapping up these uh, units. And we are really well down on the list because, first of all, we're a bit player. Uh, second of all, the other countries are actually moving on this already a long time ago. And if we come along and think we're at the top of the queue, we're wrong. So I think it's going to take quite some time to secure these units, these floating storage and regasification units. Then, of course, there are pipelines to go from the floating gasification, uh, the floating storage and regasification to the car power ships, and also from the ships that dock and, and offload the, the, the LNG gas to the, the storage units. There's pipelines involved. Then you've got to build transmission lines to the shore. Uh, you've got to build an Eskom substation or else you've got to extend the Eskom substation with an extra bay. And we all know that grid access and Eskom is in short supply and Eskom are not in good shape to deliver this sort of thing quickly. So, uh, you know, the original project, I think uh, we talked about a one year, a 12 to 18 month delivery period for car power ships. And if anything, I would think that this has been extended in the meantime because of the problems of the Russian-Ukrainian war and Eskom's problems and grid access and things like that. So uh, I don't know exactly how long it's going to take, but I would suggest that it's not a few months. And if anything, it's longer than it was at the time of bid. There were noises last week by the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy, Gwede Mantash, that said, okay, okay, maybe not a 20 years contract. Let's look at shorter contracts. Will that make any difference? It will make a difference. It'll push the price up even higher. And there will be even more delays because before you can just change the term of, of, of you know, from 20 years to 10 years, you're going to have to issue, or the DMRE are going to issue, or the IPP office, I must say, is going to have to issue a new procurement process. Because you can't just renegotiate it for one party. It would be unfair to other parties. And there may be better solutions on the table at a 10-year term than car power ships. So from a procedural point of view, they're going to have to reissue the price. Now, we, it's taken two years already. And this means another long procurement delay. And bureaucracy in public procurements is notorious. It takes a long time. It's very slow and bureaucratic. So we can expect a delay and we can expect the price to go up, if anything. And in any case, a 10-year emergency solution, okay, is better than a 20-year solution, but it's also wholly inappropriate. Perhaps they should be looking at a two-year, a three-year or a five-year emergency solution. But I would argue that even a 10-year is, is inappropriate and not rational. Okay, but is there any room for this whatsoever? Won't it be a better solution to spend the money that you would spend on these ships that will sail away and leave behind absolutely no infrastructure to spend that money and provide all new built RDP homes, for instance, with a solar geyser and a solar inverter? I'm just asking 
layman's questions here because it doesn't seem to me to be a logical, well-thought-out plan to throw such money in the direction of a foreign country. I would agree, Ilsa. I think there are so many questions, valid questions you've raised and raised in social media by the public, but I want to just point to one specific example which we know about. This so-called risk mitigation IPP program, the only projects that have reached financial close and are proceeding right now as we speak are the three Skytech projects which came in at a similar bid price to the car powership project. Their price does not escalate because there is no fuel component to their price. Skytech project is a very simple mix of solar, PV, and battery energy storage. And that is it. And what I'm saying is those solutions are happening quicker, ultimately cheaper because there is no fuel component. And so you don't have this escalating price. There are no CO2 emissions at all whatsoever during the lifetime of the plant. And these things are happening. So what I'm pointing to is that there are quicker, cheaper solutions that are more environmentally friendly, that don't cause climate change. And that's just one example. There are many others like you have pointed to, uh, rooftop solar PV and battery storage in the domestic, commercial, agricultural sector. These can be deployed quickly. We're talking about six months to a year. Uh, similarly, they, they do not have any emissions and uh, their cost is, is uh, the least cost. And these are where I think we should be looking to solutions rather than these large mega projects, which come with significant risks. They take a long time and the escalation of the fuel price is highly risky and ultimately borne by the customer. Brendan, your thoughts on all of this? Thank you, Ilza. Chris pretty much hit the nail on the head. We use this analogy quite often. The whole car powership debacle is, if you look at a, a problem analogy, it's like shooting an ant with a shotgun. So you will not only spend money on the ammunition you use, you will completely blow the ant to smithereens, but you will also cause damage to that ant's immediate environment. So it is complete overkill to go with this kind of solution for something that should be something for South Africa to keep. So the issue here is generation capacity. As Chris mentioned earlier, ESCOM will not have anything if car powership packs up and leaves in terms of generation capacity. So we should rather focus on expanding South Africa's generation capacity, whether through new renewable procurement projects rolling out or incentivizing the public to start producing their own electricity through rooftop solars and getting the municipalities on board to participate in this. Uh, just last week, we read that this is a whole new thing that's going to, to roll out in Cape Town throughout the course of the year. And that is massive. This, this doesn't only stimulate business within that particular industry, but it will, will also instill some form of confidence in ordinary South Africans that we too can be part of the solution. So the win-win situation and just a rule of thumb is the kilowatt hours that, that ESCOM does not generate at a particular point in time is a win. So if we can try to fill that void through the private sector coming in, through us ordinary citizens generating our, our own electricity, that is the way forward. 
Unfortunately, there's still a lot of red tape that needs to be removed. And a lot of this red tape lies within the regulatory environment and specifically within the sphere of political will of local government. If we can get past that hurdle, I think we can put an end to load shedding much, much faster and the reward would be much greater because we would then be part of the solution as well. Just to add to what Brendan has said, that I think as a country, we should be trying to minimize risk. And it's uh, very well understood that to minimize risk, one needs to use one's own natural resources to the fullest extent possible. And that relying on imported primary energy, that means LNG, because we don't produce LNG in South Africa, we do not have gas resources that are developed in South Africa, uh, we have to import the whole lot. That exposes us to the global market price of LNG in US dollars, as well as the vagaries of the Rand dollar exchange rate. But we have very abundant resources of very low cost energy in South Africa from wind and solar. So yes, we should be looking to maximizing our unnatural resources of wind and solar. And these happen to be resources that use little, only a, a little amount of water and they only emit uh, very low amounts of uh, carbon dioxide only during the construction and decommissioning phase. But during the whole lifetime of this plant, they don't emit any carbon dioxide emissions or other pollutants. Uh, there are, of course, waste streams during the construction and the decommissioning phase, but these are fractional, tiny, compared to uh, the emissions uh, that are uh, done on a continuous basis throughout the life cycle of a gas or a coal or a nuclear power plant. And so I, I really feel strongly that we should be looking to use our natural resources, especially one that come at low cost as, as wind and solar does. What is stopping Joburg or Tswane or Ikuruleni or Itikwini from uh, doing what Cape Town did last week and announced that uh, we will allow citizens to feed their excess uh, uh, electricity into the grid? And what is stopping those municipalities from uh, generating their own power? Ilsa, I would suggest the major reason is a lack of political will. What you're saying is that it can be done. The authorization can be sought and given for this to happen. That's exactly what Cape Town has shown us. Cape Town is, in fact, leading the way. As I mentioned, it's largely to do with political will. And the political leadership in the Western Cape and, the, and Cape Town are different from the rest of the country. And where there has been that political will, it's happening. And other uh, provinces really need to take note. Cape Town is leading the way. And I think in due course, the others will follow. There are, of course, financial constraints. Many of these uh, municipalities and even some of the metros are, are not in good shape financially. You only have to look at Twani, which is uh, you know in default of its uh, electricity procurements or payments to ESCOM to a very high level. I think it's something like one and a half billion rands. And that is symptomatic across the country in many, many municipalities. So you do need a good uh, balance sheet and strong uh, management and execution uh, ability, but you also have to have the political will. And um, that's where Cape Town is different and, and, and Western Cape is different from the rest of the country. Brendan, can Alta assist those willing to try this with any advice? 
Yes, uh, I, I would like to say if you live within a municipality and your municipality is kind of reluctant, it, it has financial constraints, it's not following suit with, with uh, Cape Town's plan, it would be highly recommended that you organize yourself as a community, participate in your local government's processes and pressure your municipality to act within your interest. The other thing is if a municipality would publicize its intentions to roll out a plan like this, that would automatically instill confidence. That would attract investors. So merely moving into a direction of intention is already the first step to changing this. But there's also strength in numbers. So once local government starts realizing that its residents are becoming much more independent and very angry at lack of service delivery, they will start opening their eyes and seeing, you know, what they, they need to do something. And the other thing is if Cape Town works, which we really think it, it, it will work out in the long run, is that would then be a testimony for local government going forward. On the other side of the coin, even if municipalities do not at this point in time have the correct plan and resources in place, the mere intention of local government to show that they are willing to, to consider alternatives and that they are willing to look at models that work, that will not only instill confidence amongst the residents, but it will most certainly also attract investors which would be to the benefit not only of, of, of the local economy, but obviously to, to the purse of the local government as well. Uh, Chris, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I, I think Brendan has put it very well. And I just want to mention, I personally am a strong believer that one of the major drivers is competition. Now, there are two kinds of competition that we see here. The first is political competition. Political parties, uh, you know, need to look to what works for citizens. And when they see things working in Cape Town and Western Cape by their political opponents, they will be tempted to follow suit in, in order to meet the political competition. The second thing, of course, is the competition, the financial and commercial competition. And provinces are in competition with each other as destinations for business and industry and tourism and all that goes with it. And again, you know, this kind of competition is good. If, if other provinces want to attract the kind of investment that uh, Western Cape and Cape Town are attracting, they need to create the right business and economic environments in their provinces that attract this business. And again, that's why I think the work that Cape Town has been done will ultimately be followed and will uh, benefit wider parts of the country than just the Western Cape and Cape Town. And competition is the driver uh, for this change. Thank you. And that was Chris Yelland. He is an independent energy expert. And Brendan Slade, he is the project manager of Autos Energy Division. Thank you for listening to this Outer podcast and remember to share it with your friends. And please consider donating to Outer. We are reliant on your donations to do our work. All donations are tax deductible. Read more at outer.co.za.